All right, I wouldn't say your hottest hot takes. Not <laughs> hot takes again. We are still at Remix Comp. They have just wrapped the day conference, and we're now in between the after party and the main day conference. Um, we, we can't start the episode like this. Okay. We got to do it the same way we start every episode, okay. which is Ishan Scott. Welcome to the show. What's Thank up? Thank you. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Andrew at the exact same time. Perfect. Let's, let's do that again. <laughs> okay, so let's go you first, then you first. So Ishan Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be back here a second time. Yes, absolutely. Second time for me as well. And it's really fun to actually be doing this in person, live, totally in the same room. Yeah, we had Ishan with Mark quite a while ago now, last year, to talk about Layer Zero, which has now been acquired. We'll get into that. And then, Scott, we talked to you just two days ago with Will, so that episode will air before this one. We're at Remix Conf, and we're really excited to have you both here to talk about both Remix and what's going on with Layer Zero today, and we'll have a lot of topics to get into. Yeah, I think the key thing, you know, with Remix Conference, it's like, I think, one of the first, there's been like maybe two or three others so far that are in-person developer conferences. You know, aside from the technical topics, it's just amazing to see. And everyone I've talked to has just been so excited and energized by seeing these, you know, the people they've talked to they haven't seen in two years. This is my first in-person conference in like two years. And it's been really invigorating. And everyone I've talked to has basically kind of echoed that. And there are people I have only met in the last two years purely online like you guys. That's right. And yeah. I mean, even my own coworker. True. And now uh, we get to see each other in person. So, which is awesome. It, yeah, it's just totally great. I find it crazy to think we've all got legs. You yeah. know? I do. We've only seen each other from the torso. We've only up. Seen, yeah. Well, yeah, right. it's always, all, it, it's interesting because not only do we have legs, we're also all different heights. But when you're sitting at a desk, you're like, are they taller than me or am I taller than them? Just so you everyone know? knows, I'm That's the tallest. Anthony is the tallest. I don't think so. But Wait, yeah. Like, I don't, Scott six seems foot. like he might, yeah. Six foot? Yeah. Six one. Okay, well, I guess he's got me. Oh, yeah. Second. I don't know. Or I could be six one and just not know it. <laughs> and just be modest. Yeah. I actually, yeah. Met one of my, <laughs> actually met one of my old coworkers here, Sam from uh, Step Zen, and we are the exact same height. We're both six one, and we <laughs> looked at each other, and we were like, right on it. There you go. <laughs> and you hadn't met in person before? No. No, oh, I've, I've yeah. met... Anant and some of the team who were in the Bay Area at the time and I was going into the office like once a week at Steps In. It was not fun. <laughs> you know, this is somewhat off topic, but somewhat on topic is just the whole remote work and that dynamic. So Layer Zero had been remote first pre-pandemic for the longest time. But we so did, you were already ready to go. You were set. I mean, we were essentially set up for already going remote first. I was already, you know, in a different location than where the headquarters were. So are our teams. Do you think that's a competitive advantage? I think it has been and it was, but COVID really forced a lot of companies to catch up to that. Which I'm very thankful for. I could not work in an office. I, I will only ever do remote work. Yeah, I mean, there's lots of people who say that. And I think part of what's fueling, you know, that so-called great resignation is from all the data, it's people switching for new opportunities that have opened up partially through remote work or partially just because their old existing position was gone and that forced them to reevaluate and say, oh, maybe I should look for something else. One of the things we did as we were doing remote, though, is we still made sure that we had a once a quarter or three times a year, we'd all get together in person just to kind of cement and build up some social capital that we would basically be using throughout the remote rest of the year. It was really invigorating. There are certain things we could only get done 
when we all had those those onsites together. This kind of feels like that same feeling, except for the JavaScript community as a whole, where you walk out and be like, oh yeah, I not only enjoy my work and the people I work with, but I really just enjoy hanging out with them. It feels like that's the same thing happening here. Yeah, and that is a kind of the double-edged sword of remote work is that even though I say I wouldn't want to work in an office, I can only do remote work. Like I'm so invigorated by this conference and getting to meet all the people in person and just like hang out in a room with you guys. It's really great. And it's such a bummer that we all had to spend like two years just not having social contact. Like humans are social creatures. <laughs> like we thrive on social contact. For us, not having social contact feels like you've been jettisoned from the tribe, which back in the day would mean you're going to die. Yeah, like, yeah. Your survival used to depend on being in a social group. Yeah. I will say there's another double-edged sword to it, having been doing this for a while. And that's, there's two things. One is if you're distributed and you're remote, the time zones can kill you. The time zones are complicated. Okay. Yeah. T tell me about it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, we've, yeah. We've been working around that the yeah. entire time we've had to do this, you yeah, know? Yeah. Online. I had to wake up at nine o'clock to do podcasts. Nine o'clock. Who has to wake up at nine o'clock? <laughs> I you wake said, up at 6 30 a.m. You say, you, you, you've literally said, this is my favorite activity to do. You're like, this is my favorite activity to do. And so I wake up at 9 o'clock yeah. to do it. 9 yeah. o'clock's late. I am like a such person. a night owl. <laughs> yeah. Like, I stay yeah. up till midnight every day, like at least sometimes one or two, you know? I'm about to say, I feel like I'm really burning the candle. Yeah. <laughs> I go to bed at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. UK time, and then I get up like 8 a.m. UK time, like, Seven hours, six hours, every single day. I need to sleep more. I think that's the answer. This is for us, like our center of mass for your team is something that's worth calculating and figuring out, like what's the best time zone. And my back of the envelope on this is, at least for us, the best is somebody who lived in the East Coast and wakes up early. Because for us, we span all the way from the West Coast of the United States all the way into Eastern Europe. And so that's mm -hmm. a, a pretty broad swath. And we've still got other folks even further around the globe True, in regions like APAC and so forth. Time zones, you know, we have to sometimes be on odd times just to communicate with other teammates. My schedule, even though I work in the West Coast, I live in East Coast schedule. Like I wake up East Coast time and I communicate. With I think it's really way. challenging. And this is obviously a podcast about JavaScript, but yeah. like I take off my hat every day to my partner that doesn't care if I work late. Working late is not... I wouldn't say it's a normal thing to do, but like when you're a family, you're always working. Yeah. And it's that thing of like, when do you make time? Yeah. When do you make time for your partner who works nine till five, but you're speaking to everyone who is seven hours behind you? You know what I mean? So what your work day is 10 till eight, you yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. then how do you make time for your partners? And I personally think that remote work is an amazing idea, but the execution is the hardest thing ever because I believe the only time, and I can't say this from like truth, but I think the only time remote working can like properly work in like my idea of working now and also my experience of like doing the podcast and all these other things is when you work in teams in close enough locations like for example i think that's what prisma does yeah. prisma obviously is in berlin and san francisco and all the people around europe work at european time and all the people in san francisco uh, like america work the american time yep and i think that's really good but then the problem with like that idea is that when it communication happens you're speaking to san francisco that is like dawn in the morning for them and europe that's like nighttime. you got people that have had their work day and want to go home and people just starting yeah. it's like no winning in my eyes. This actually does have a technical angle to it, which is the ideal is almost like microservices. When you're decomposing a monolith, you want to make sure you cut the lines of responsibility appropriately. Mm -hmm. 
to the right modular components. And if you can organize teams like geographically appropriately, then you can kind of get that modularity and you just have to make sure they're composable business units or composable teams. Mm -hmm. Kind of like, you know, the AWS model of the two pizza rule for how big your team is. One of the things we've done is we've kind of slowly had a shift of a lot of our engineering being U.S. West Coast base. And now actually we have a locus that is in Tallinn, Estonia. And that's where like one of our engineering teams is. We have another engineering team that focuses on different parts of like the data pipeline and they're in another part of Eastern Europe. And that has actually helped us work out. So it's almost like that same microservices thing. And there's that famous law, Conway's law, right? Your organization can't help but build a product that reflects it. So you have to make those judicious decisions in your HR organization. You know, it's an HR thing, but it actually does impact your product. In a lot of ways. That's funny. You mentioned Conway's Law and the two pieces of team. I remember we talked with Monarch about this all the way back on like episode three. We've <laughs> talked about those topics and it's so true. And you really have to be aware of that. But I think the benefit is if you have a global user base, if everyone's asleep for eight hours, what happens when something goes down? Oh, it's yeah. like the, the benefit of just having like your support team distributed across a 24-hour time span is so beneficial because then there's always someone there to like answer a question answer it quickly and can like jump in and help out so like that is why i think actually having people in different time zones is much more of a virtue but yeah, that absolutely is a very specific job i'm not saying i don't respect support because you know we need them and, and people are gonna need support for yeah, exactly one day <laughs> exactly exactly but like support can be done without n much knowledge of like relationships between like milestones like say for example you know you're in america i'm in england and we need to pair program who's gonna sacrifice their time am i gonna sacrifice my evening or are you gonna sacrifice your morning i don't think there's an answer to this pair and program is not support though support no, is when a customer needs help yes no no sorry I, I was trying to say that support is very like it can be very distributed but when it comes to development i think it's much harder to be distributed because we are social animals and actually we can fix problems faster when we have people around us who have similar experiences and now if i have to wait six hours for my friend in america to wake up is that six hours of my workday gone it's a really interesting question the reason i think this is so interesting is because programming even like javascript is so america dependent you don't realize it because you're here if mm -hmm. that makes sense like unless you write java no no like most programming languages are just america centric like the first place any conference has probably ever been is probably america like remixes in america obviously there's some big conferences in europe but it's not the norm it's norm like in america because that's where most programmers are far many more programmers live in the united states than most everywhere else mm -hmm. are there other aspects like you're right i'm a fish in water so i don't realize that besides the the conferences like is it dealing with the support of some company is it you're getting only the tier one support but it's hard to get to the the experts or you're and the trying to the create community are yeah. like dead zones for like eight hours a day yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a big problem for like Discord people. I know will say this. I like people who are hanging out who are living in India or that kind of area. They're just like, I have no one to talk to when I'm on the Discord. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And this is actually really prevalent to JavaScript Jam. I would love to sit there and spend time in these Twitter zones, yeah. uh, Twitter spaces. But they're all more or less American times. They are. And for me, that's nine o'clock at night. And I'm either, you know. I thought you went to bed after midnight. Well, I do. But, <laughs> you know, I like, to, I like to give my partner some time. And I hate to say it, but if I didn't have my partner, I'd probably be burnt out by now. You know, she's no, the one valid, that. Yeah. 
you know, yeah. she's the one that says, just turn yeah. it off. Like, and that's frustration from my side, but I understand why she says that. And I really loved being on JavaScript Jam, but that's the thing. Like, why don't we host these at UK times or European times? It's because Europe just, we don't work like that. Like development is so different that side of the world yeah. in the middle distributed jobs is amazing you know the idea to work for an american company and live in my home country is amazing but there's definitely downsides to it and personally i'm a home worker but i feel like i would like to work in an office like i personally feel like i'd like a balance go to the office and communicate where i want to but also go and stay at home when i want to keep my head down you know what i mean yeah Yeah. i've often thought the right model, like I kind of think of it like there's like two models in my head that how this could work is one is like an I call it like an Avengers model. You have everyone distributed around like within a five hour driving radius. Mm-hmm. Cause you know when you've got to ship something, so much gets done when you're all physically in the same room and you're just like, let's bang this out for this week. And so you can say, like, when that team or that microservice needs to ship whatever their core part of the product is, like, let's just get together. We'll find a WeWork, we'll all get this done. And then you can go back and you can get those on sites, but with a more frequent kind of pace. The other one is, you know, this Paul Graham maker manager essay that he wrote a while ago, which is the programmer developer needs lots of focus time. A manager, their whole job is meetings. Try to do both. You're going to fill up your day with meetings and you won't be able to get the focus time you need for development. I think something analogous happens in organizations. Like, is your organization synchronous based, which means things get done in meetings? Or is your organization asynchronous based, where you can do everything through Slack or email? And there are some companies, like I think Automatic is one of them, that is very asynchronous based. It's been virtual and remote for a long time. I think GitLab is another one, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, GitLab is 100% async. I think you have to be as much async as possible and you should only go to synchronous when it has to be. When something like needs to be kind of communicated face-to-face very quickly. But um, I think, Scott, you had something to say on this. Yeah, I mean, actually, I was going to say something about what Chris was saying with the whole, okay, I'm in the UK, I'd like to get on more of these things, right? But I can't because the majority of these things are hosted at a time that's just not convenient for him. And, you know, the funny thing is when we're running like that clubhouse thing, we had a lot of people from like India and stuff like that. And it was like one, point. two in the morning for them. And they couldn't really talk because it was late and they could only like type into the chat. So when we introduced the chat, we actually yeah. got more conversation going. The interesting thing I just thought about was think about it. Like what does Google say? Like they're like planning for like the next, what is it? Million users or whatever. That's what yeah. their focus is. Right. That's like their big thing. I think it's a million, but anyway, it's a number. <laughs> they're always trying to be more inclusive with things. Right. And so is everyone. It's just kind of like a big thing nowadays, right? Like really inclusivity, all this stuff, accessibility, inclusivity, all that together. And my thought is maybe that's something we should all be thinking about more. Maybe we should host something at a time that's more convenient to those people. Because here's the thing. Chris said that the majority of people who are engineers and developers are in the United States. But I think you might be wrong. I think you're close. But I think that India has a lot of developers that we just don't get in touch with because there's a lot of people there. When I say and elsewhere. a lot of developers in the United States because it's a lot of like the known developers. You sure. know what I mean? It's so much easier to, how do I get this on about UK versus America? But it's just so different here and like, sure. and so much approachable. And I think the biggest thing I can say here is that, great, you want to host things in time that I could deal with, but then you're sacrificing your life. I get that. I get that. You but, know what I mean? But okay, so there's got to be something then. Okay, maybe it's we help other people in, say, India or 
the UK or whatever to take the uh, initiative, you know, and help them to build these things up or something. I don't know. I mean, there's probably people that do this already. It's just not as many, I guess. Right. But mm. that's how Google got so many more users is the fact is they changed the YouTube to be, I don't know exactly what they did, but they did it to where they made it to where YouTube was accessible on these uh, slower networked phones mm-hmm. in India. Right. And stuff like that. And it increased their user base by like hundreds of millions of people, right? And which is insane. So it's like, if you could do that same thing, but from perspective of what you're talking about, you know, this, then holy cow, there could be a lot of people that you're missing out on that could be. But it's also about. that, you know, social media is the uh, inherent thing is very Americanized. Here in obviously, well, the American like, social media networks. Yeah. like China has their own exactly. social networks. Yeah. Which are completely exactly. different. But like, WeChat. for example, Europe, we don't really have any social networks that are like this is a European social network. Like, mm. we use Twitter, we use Reddit, we use Facebook. But like, well, there you go. <laughs> That's your next thing, Chris. Uh, your next startup idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't go anywhere. It honestly wouldn't go anywhere. Trust me. Everyone loves Facebook. No, sorry, TikTok. But what I'm trying to say is that I think that. The idea of distributed manpower is such a powerful idea, yeah. but it's not something that can just happen. I think it has to be worked on. And I think it's particularly people's jobs. Like my job is to make sure the machine runs smoothly of distribution because obviously this is on the outside, but I feel like when I try to, you know, think about all these things, I'm like, you don't just say, yeah, we're all disputing, that's it. Like, you work from home. Yeah, will, you know, it's, it's never just that simple. And I think that there's so much to learn and digest. And, like, I feel like today I'm digesting so much knowledge about, like, America as a whole. And, like, it's changing my opinions on everything of, like, America. And, and she keeps saying America is not this, you know. Because mm-hmm. I'd say America is X, whereas America is not X. And I really get that now. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a hard lesson to learn. And it's, I'm sure it's the same with England. Like, it's no yeah. country is one thing. It's a yeah. amalgamation of millions or even billions of people, which they don't all agree, you know. Yeah. Let me give you an example how code is Americanized yeah. by default. It's English, first of all. Yes, but it's not, yes, one, but it's not English UK, like colour, C-O-L-O-U-R, I believe it didn't used to work, it just wouldn't colour, but that's how we spell everything, Mm -hmm. you know, or, um, the dollar symbol. You save a bit there. Hmm? The dollar symbol. (laughs) Remember that one? (laughs) That's jQuery. Okay, the dollar symbol. We were asking Chris if he used a pound sign when he wrote jQuery. (laughs) (laughs) And I said it's the it's the jQuery symbol. That's all I know it for. <laughs> um, good one, right? Yeah. That is a good one. Yeah. But what what I mean is like, say when you work on a distributed workforce, say you have British people and you have American people, how should something be spelled? Should the British person spell capitalization, right? A function called capitalization. Should I write it the British way with an S or should I write it the American way with a Z? It's a really good question. I mean, Americans wouldn't even say Z. Yeah. And no, you write it with yeah. a Z. And if, you're, and if you're you're in JavaScript, that could be a runtime error. Mm-hmm. If somebody is totally, you know, using one spelling. Yeah, your entire other. app yeah. could break if you, yeah. had, if you don't have a long letter. Yeah. Yeah. Like, here's an example. Or I, for mistake, actually had both versions in my app. The same function in two different files. One the UK spelling, one the American spelling. And I was calling it in different places because I wasn't realizing I was doing it. You know what I mean? Wow. Because yeah. I'm... yeah. I'm not biting because it's English, but it, you know what I mean? Like, you don't so realize it. This is really like... You need does, TypeScript. 
Yeah. That this was TypeScript. <laughs> this was TypeScript saying, oh, you, you got it here. You know what I mean? You yeah. just don't realize. Are you conscious of this? Or does this like build up? Yeah, like is it forefront in your mind or is it you only realize it after a while? Like it's creating little bits of friction, right? A lot of paper cuts. Uh, yeah. And imagine, I'm sure it's even worse for somebody who isn't even in the English language sphere. Mm. But mm. how are you mentally aware of it? Like, do you feel it or do you not only subconsciously? Yeah, I feel it all the time in very unique ways. Let's take Stripe, for example. Yeah. Stripe is an international platform. But when it comes to writing addresses, the street address is called zip codes. Zip codes are a US thing. Everywhere else calls them postal codes. Mm. We write zip codes, but then we put postal codes. And like the other one when it comes to addresses is state. Oh, yeah. We don't use states in the UK. We have states, but they're called counties. So like Lincolnshire, Leicestershire. There's no answer. There's no answer how everybody can win. But let me give you an example where I've seen a win that made sense. Right. This happened actually in the Remix workshop is that they had the default native web calendar picker for dates and i looked over at my the person next to me computer and he wrote the date in us it populated it as 12 6 2022 whatever but in my view i had it in the uk way of like 0208 well they're not big numbers but you know what i mean i had the opposite way the way we do in the uk and that seemed right like the web was smart enough to go, I just know what that means. Like, if I was to write CSS, say if I wrote color, surely web should be smart enough to go, yeah, I know what that means. That that means he wants to change the color of the text. And I believe that is actually in the spec now, I think. But it's a really interesting thing about uh, web development is that I think this is a very British thing because we have our own unique spellings of American words. But say if you were, say, not native English speaker, you would just default to the American way of spelling things, sure. I believe. I well, believe. no, maybe not. I mean, hmm. look at countries like India, where the, the language has been influenced effectively by both countries. I think mm. Canadians mm. tend to lean towards UK spelling. I may be wrong about that. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean most of the Commonwealth... French over there a lot. <laughs> the, the Commonwealth <laughs> countries, it would make sense. That's really fascinating. I'm like walking away from this conversation thinking about accessibility in a different way in terms of not just the technology, but also in terms of community building, as Scott was bringing up. Yeah. You know, what you're talking about there in terms of like, you said the web, but I think you really meant the browser, like because it was localized. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And that speaks to all the work that I think Scott was alluding to about making the platform or your product more accessible, whether it's a browser or Mm -hmm. whether it's, you know, YouTube and accessibility is about performance. Sure. This is another dimension of it that i just haven't considered i think the best thing always is you will never fix it but you're mindful of it and Mm. i think that's about most problems in the world as a whole i mean we could fix it if we wrote like crazy complicated logic to handle like all these edge cases it's just a matter of like is it worth investing in the time to make both spellings correct yeah but this or does it make more sense to have social coordination to decide on a spelling Mm. Let's I, I might guess about, it's worth this it. about temperature. There's as well. something really <laughs> cool that I think that yeah. could come out of that. But for example, surely it must be crazy for say someone who's French. They just speak French, and they're like, "Yeah, but if I want to write some HTML, now I have to write it in English." So we should write all of our programs in Esperanto. 
<laughs> I bet Isha knows yes, Esperanto yes, is. Yes, yes, yeah. the universal language. The universal and we do language. it in Java. So it's <laughs> Esperanto. The, the, yeah, you need a, a virtual machine that will run anywhere. That that also you only can program in Esperanto. Uh, oh my god! This, this is a really interesting conversation, but yeah. we've already like yes. probably like halfway through our episode. Yeah. And we should talk about some other stuff. Ishan beforehand was like, "Are we going? What are we going to talk about?" And like, we're going <laughs> to talk about plenty of stuff. So I would love to really get into what is the state of Layer Zero today? Because the last time we talked to you had not been acquired yet. Now you've been acquired. So that's a very big change. Yes. Let me first set the stage for the audience who hasn't heard about Layer Zero. Layer Zero is basically a Jamstack platform for, I'd like to say, I don't use the word enterprise, but high stakes websites, large sites that have lots of pages or they change frequently, where you want to have the performance, the scalability, the reliability that you get from the Jamstack, but where, you know, traditional static techniques don't apply. And we've actually been doing Jamstack in a sense before it was called Jamstack, but it wasn't static Jamstack. We were doing serverless Jamstack, including at one point building our own version of, of AWS Lambda in order to effectively do a, a serverless first approach to it. So that's layer zero. And we've got a lot of a lot of clients, a couple of household names. I always have to check myself which ones we can say, but if you just go to our website, layerzero.co, you can see the list of customers. That's layer zero. And when we last talked to you, that was our focus and it remains our focus. What happens, you know, with more recently, Limelight Networks is one of the largest CDNs out there. They have, I think, like the second largest CDN network out there, but they've been very focused on video for the last five or this 10 years. This is interesting because I think most people who are web developers today, when they hear of CDN, they've been kind of trained to think of it in the Netlify versus all kind of model. Like a CDN is a place where you put static HTML and like that's what it's for, you know? So that's not what a CDN is. There's a lot more to CDNs than that. Yes, and there's a lot more can do. And in the case of Limelight, what they've been doing is powering most of your streaming services. In fact, most of the people listening to this have used and consumed video content. If you've gone to almost any streaming service, that was powered through limelight that's why they've got such great bandwidth and infrastructure mm -hmm. if limelight is number two is akamai number one on the size of the network because they're cdns they, they are I, but but that's the thing they're classic like 40 30 years yeah so CDNs. It, uh, well it depends how you're actually drawing the rank mm -hmm. so the rank could be by revenue it could be by number of pops it could be by capacity number of bits and number, <laughs> number oh my gosh i mean so <laughs> there's there's a there's a lot of of ways but they have a, a massive network that's been built for video, and that's where they're they're most known. What they wanted to do was was two things. They had a new CEO who came in, and he's like, it's clear where the hockey puck is going a couple of years ago. He's like, CDNs have to become edge platforms. Uh, you know, even actually before we were, we were hearing, you know, here at RemixConf a lot about the edge. But the CEO, Bob, was clearly realized that's where the hockey puck was going. He believes not only like Jamstack is the future, but edge is really key to the future. The analogy I like to make is it's kind of like an airline, like Limelight wanted to move into the web CDN space and the edge platform space in a very bold manner and enter that market. When you think about it, like starting an airline, you need to have a certain amount of planes, you need to have pilots. There's you a lot of expertise. Like I've thought about starting an airline yeah. before. <laughs> <laughs> but imagine your, your FedEx or your UPS. You already have the pilots. You already have the airplanes. What you need to do is kind of change out the software, but you could use the same infrastructure you already have. You've got essentially the moat already built. That's what was behind us joining up with Limelight is to create not just the next great web app CD platform, but actually the next great edge platform. To that end, we actually have publicly announced, although SEC warning, I suppose this is not officially closed. This won't go out for like a month. Oh, well, it might have closed by the time this, this is written. We're doing two things. First is 
There's an acquisition of Edgecast, which is another CDN. That's just going to continue to increase our scale in both capacity as well as, you know, headcount and the ability to get development velocity out there. And it's also going to, you know, we're going to rebrand ourselves as Edgeo to emphasize the, the new direction. I like that we're name. Going into. That's a good name. Yeah. EDG. Dot io. Oh, yes. Thank you. Yeah. So the, the URL is edg.io. The web page is up already. That's going full scale ahead right now. So we're in a very exciting and interesting point. And it's been very, very interesting. I like to tell people, they ask, what is it like when you've been acquired? I'm like, it's kind of like going from high school to college. Like getting in was an accomplishment, but like you've just signed yourself up for four years that are actually going to be operating at a much larger scale than you were before, <laughs> which is both exciting. Yeah, I've heard it's like a marriage. Yeah, it absolutely is. For sure. On a lot of different ways, culturally and organizationally. There's some things that, that helped, like they were already going distributed and remote as well. But now we were distributed and global. They're even more distributed and global. I mean, they're a publicly traded company. They're very large. They've got more presence historically than we have had in, say, regions like APAC, which is Asia Pacific. And so, you know, you were talking about like support. It's not just that you need to have the support around the clock. You have customers in Asia and they want their customer support representative that they build a relationship and a rapport with regularly. And their project managers on the other side should be also in their time. And even speak region. their language. You and know? can speak their language. So you need to make sure your documentation, your planning localization and things yeah. like that. So no it's, barriers. Yeah. A lot of what you were talking about actually kind of resonated. But that's it's also the opportunity. And it's been really exciting. Yeah, we're all about the edge here. I've been like pushing the edge and just edge native architectures for a really long time. So super happy to hear that. And I've been loving all the remix stuff about the edge, like Dino Deploy and Cloudflare and all that stuff. And I think the real benefit is that you just don't have to think about where your thing is anymore. Like you just can assume it's everywhere and it just simplifies the mental model for the developer in such a great way because because you don't have to worry about, okay, I'm going to deploy it here, and then that means it's going to have good performance here, but bad performance here. Yeah. And that's just like, that's such overhead that you shouldn't have to think about as a developer. I, I have think. a little bit of a contrarian view on that. Okay. Uh, so I think we're still sorting that out. Because of the database, right? Because, well, a couple things. There's the database, but let's leave the database out of it for a second, because that is a big area that still hasn't been solved yet in the ecosystem. Let's just take server-side rendering as an example. Does it make more sense to server-side render your page once and distribute it out onto a cache to 100 global pops around the world. That's still the edge to me. Well, that is, but the edge isn't actually doing the computation. The edge is doing the caching and maybe the cache key normalization, which is one of the things... That's the thing. I don't care what's happening where. The fact is that something ends up on the edge. What I'm seeing in the ecosystem is a lot of interest and excitement about doing everything at that edge node. Imagine you did server-side rendering on the edge node. That may be the right thing to do. It may not be. So let's take a, your homepage. And if your homepage isn't, say, personalized, or maybe only parts of it are, it may make sense to process the server-side rendering at one node and have that one node give it to all the other nodes than to say, I'm going to have all those 100 nodes run server-side rendering. That is more efficient. Actually, it's probably going to cost you more CPU time collectively. There needs to be a judicious balance of when it makes sense and when it doesn't. And I still think the ecosystem is learning that out. And this is why we have to create the right conventions so that the things that need to be done on the edge are done on the edge. And things Agreed. that don't need to be on the edge Agreed. don't need to be on the edge. That's yes. the thing that the developer should not have to think about that. I agree. Yeah. I was, was going to say a really good example of why the edge will be useful is because we live in America-centric land, you know? 
whenever you know most startups <laughs> we use we're like yeah yeah you know we'll just host in us west or us east and then you think about it and you're like oh yeah Every customer outside the US, every single request is going all the way to the United States, then all the way back to the country of choice. Yes. And you're like, yeah, but speed of light, it's all like milliseconds in time. And if I've got to get data from the United States to process something, yeah. and then I've got to add my processing overhead, yes. and then say if I've got to then send data back, if we're looking outside the sphere of influence of America, edge computing will be very successful in terms of like, I won't have to take that data to America and back. But there is so many questions that Does that, that change arise. GDPR for you? Uh, this is what yeah. I'm going to say. Like, <laughs> for example, we talk about distributed databases, but customers in certain countries want their data in a certain country. Yes. I, you know, right. in my area, I know nonprofits in most countries will want that data to be hosted in that country. That means I've got to spin up a database in each country. How do you run all that management? You yep. know, that's something I don't do right now. But like when I speak to like Planet Scale, they kind of went, it's just one database everywhere. And you're like, yeah, but how are you going to explain that to your customers who are not technology savvy? And they went, I want my data in the UK. Oh yeah, but your data is also in 50 other nodes around the world. And I think this is a really interesting question like we were saying about could computation be in a select few places yeah, that you then you specifically select yeah that then is distributed you know okay. like you know we we work in areas of like americas europe and africa asia well you, you know? can turn pops on and off right for different things. you can i mean depends on the platform you're on this is actually the use case for the edge that I don't think most people pay attention to. Realize the legal barriers. The the legal and compliance. Like Mm -hmm. somebody put out, it's like the hierarchy of needs for developers and compliance is actually the foundational one. And you don't think about that as much. I think we're going to talk about the composability summit. We're actually looking for a speaker specifically to talk about composability and compliance for exactly this reason. When you're no longer dealing with a monolith and your data is given to you different places, is it a disadvantage or is it an advantage? It could be either or both. That now your data is distributed. It might be easier to handle GDPR, but then I have this management overhead mm-hmm. of like making sure that those things don't get violated. It gets down to even like the routing level to make sure that even if you've got an edge node in one place and all it's just serving is cache data, can you legally serve the data from that? Mm. Uh, when are you a processor or not in CCPA or GDPR is, is a really it's, important it's question. All, it's not only that, it's the biggest gray area that I still don't have an answer for. Like, for example, have you heard of, like, I think it's called the US Data Shield? Is that even legally binding to an American company? Like, Who knows? A great question is when you work with, say, enterprises in the UK, they'll have a DPO. They'll go, show me your services. And you go, oh, we use uh, three three services that are in America. What do you mean they're not all in the UK? And then I think, but you're not asking Facebook to show you their services. And they are going to do a lot worse things than I'm going to do. But that's because the size of scale. I'm pretty sure they're asking Facebook. Yeah, to, how to, do you yeah. know they're not asking Yeah, Facebook. they're, yeah. they're, they're calling them up to, that. yeah. <laughs> this is, I remember, I was it the Data Shield? There was this policy before GDPR. Yeah, was the, the Data Shield was proven to be not legally binding. GDPR exactly. was invented because of Facebook, let's be real. It is, yeah. It's uh, a, the bigger because networks. of Facebook, because of Google, the because of social the yeah, reason yeah, why that yeah. law was written is because of Silicon Valley Because companies. of the amount of data. But I, I think it's actually because every everything was going back to chris's point everything's american centric yes exactly. and it's like mm. it's like imagine you don't control your currency imagine you yeah, don't control the, for that. the yeah you don't control the, the yeah the the day yeah exactly yeah you you don't have to tell you to imagine it uh but like 
you don't control your citizens' data. This other entity that you have no legal arm to affect them, it can be, you know, scary to your sovereignty. So totally makes sense. Chris, you're going to say something. Yeah, I, I think these are the bigger questions. Like some people would say, yeah, but worry about that stuff when you scale. And it's like, yes, but also we should all be talking about it. And like, it's so weird, like to Americans, it's like GDPR is a tick box almost. To you're a bit fundamentally changed how marketing worked. If you want to send me an email, I need to tick a box. If you send me an email, uh, you could say, oh, it was out of good faith. And we could go, okay. Yeah. But then if you send me another email, I can be like, this is a violation of GDPR and you should not be doing this. And I could not sue you, but get you fined yeah. by the regulation. And also each country could implement gdpr separately in like certain circumstances and then like the perfect one that this is going to be amazing to americans is what's your opinion on cookie bars we hate them they're the worst it's the reason why no one likes gdpr yeah. but that's the thing cookies is not all about gdpr cookies was before gdpr yes. gdpr is about marketing consent but gdpr is why everyone decided to add the cookie banners Am I correct I, on that? I actually thought there was uh, a mandate on cookies before that. But yeah, I could there be was wrong. a mandate on but cookies But no one followed first. it. No one paid attention to it. Yeah, because they just went, we're a U.S. company. You're I coming think to that, us. Well, I thought they felt they were fine under the Data Shield agreement. But this is not the legal part We're not part legal. Of this. Yeah, exactly. We're not. We're not. Yeah. This is yeah, not legal advice. None of us yes. are experts on yeah, this. Yeah. I feel like. I, not I'm, legal or financial advice. And this is right. actually a really good question. And I think there's a startup here that could make a lot of money answering tech lawyer questions you know oh, i bet there's a dozen i'm sure you know you stick it into a box i'm a uk company i'm going to be operating in america what do i need to tackle you know these 20 things i think that startup is called in-house counsel at the fang companies <laughs> it's like the regulations although they're designed to help people and they do help i do worry that you know, the regulation creates a burden for startups and it's going to make it harder for them to compete. And the larger companies will figure out a way to be compliant. It's actually harder for the smaller companies to have that kind Very of, so. that kind so. of legal consent. Make sure we get into composability yes. before we, 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 we close it out here. Yeah, yeah. We quickly spoke about that, but what is it? Tell me more. I do not know much. I do not know anything. Give me the pitch. Yeah, so composability. The term and the conference. The, the term and the conference. So let's talk about the term first. There's a number of trends we're seeing in the ecosystem that are all centered around this idea that you can build and rebuild your stack like Lego bricks or even your whole company. We're used to calling this Jamstack. Other folks call it API first. So Forrester is API first. The Mock Alliance calls it a mock architecture. Red Monk has called it the smokestack. Gartner calls it a composable business or composable architecture. But it's this idea that you're you're now getting this ability to build and rebuild as business needs change and evolve. And what's the new one we heard today? Netlify, what'd they say? Headless is getting rebranded in some contexts is the other term. And that's getting rebranded in a lot of places as composability. What we said is, look, they all got this composability concept. That's our name to kind of put the umbrella on this broader concept of, hey, can I adapt my stack as needs change? And what's really interesting is that this isn't just for developer happiness. There's a clear business need. When you look at, you know, McKinsey did this survey, it was roughly like they surveyed like, I think, 2,000 executives from a variety of companies and a variety of verticals. And it was one in 10, only one in 10 thought their existing business model would last from now till 2023, which means nine out of 10 think they got to redo their, some part of their business. And a digital experience is either going to be central pillar to that or a buttress to that and a really important part. So developer velocity is really paramount and time to market is paramount. And that's why I think composability has such a, a value. So we're launching this conference, virtual summit. It'll be entirely online call Composability Virtual Summit at composability.dev at the end of June. I know, Scott, anything else you want to add to that? 
First of all, thank you so much for explaining all that. If you go to composability.dev, there's a little bit of information there. We are going to continue updating it as time goes on. More speakers are coming up. We are expecting to have 30 plus speakers. It's going to be really good. We have many, many already. And um, so we speaking probably. Yeah, Anthony, <laughs> for sure. We're going to talk about that. But we got some pretty good names. You want to do some shout outs to people we have like for sure on there already? We've got Kelly from Commerce Tools. We got Daniel from Nuxt. We got Justin from Universal Standard, who also spoke at Jamstack Conference last year. We've got a few other folks we'll be adding to the website soon. So something Absolutely. I'm curious about is when Scott had pitched me on this, he used the term microservices and micro front ends. Yeah. And so I'm curious because when I hear those terms, I hear the opposite of developer velocity. To me, like full stack monolith is what gets you developer velocity. And then that's like why we are trying to go more towards the full stack jam stack. But breaking up the things into different pieces is because it actually is more resilient and does have a lot of knock on effects, but it actually can slow down developer velocity because you end up having to piece together all these different bits and pieces. So can you help like yeah. sort out in my mind, because I, I think I'm not quite understanding this correctly, is like how do microservices and micro front ends fit into the concept of composability? Okay, so... You're absolutely right. Some cases, microservices are a bad idea. In some cases, the monolith is the bad idea. And we actually have a planned talk for one that's called I Heart My Monolith. So the situation you have to think about it is in, in an enterprise context. Once you get to a certain scale, having everybody in the same monolith is going to have people stepping on each other's toes. Yeah, eventually the monolith breaks down. Well, it and, breaks and, and down. I, and I get that. Yeah, you can't, for example, like you can't have a team deploy. I want to do an HTML change. I just want to change the text on some button. Now I need to go through this whole long DevOps process and make sure the server gets populated and the cache gets cleared. In our previous company, I've been on these calls with large companies and they're trying to deploy and it's like 12 people on the call. And so everything has to get bundled up in these releases and your whole velocity gets slowed down. In some sense, Jamstack is kind of the on-ramp to microservices because what you do is you say, well, first let me decouple the back end from the front end. And this is one of the first things we found out when we were doing, I like to say Jamstack before Jamstack, is in MoveWeb, which was a company that was mobilizing sites. And what we saw was customers who were pushing out changes to their mobile version of their site 10 times faster. There were 10 more deploys per week than their desktop site. And that's because what we'd said is we gave them a platform where they could change their HTML without changing the back end. We had decoupled the front end from the back end. And that's like the first example of where, but hey, if you're in Ruby on Rails and you're one person, that decoupling might just add extra overhead. Back to kind of Conway's law. And I do think decoupling the front end and the back end makes sense. And this is the whole point of Redwood. Redwood yeah. does have a decoupled front end and back end, but it gives it to you in a monolithic kind of package that allows you to kind of split the difference there. And so I think if you can take a microservice architecture and figure out a way to kind of present it to developers as if it was monolithic by a lot of really, really intelligent developer tooling and mm -hmm. like smart architecture within your project, you can get that same kind of velocity, even though it is actually decoupled. Let me give you actually a totally different use case to just broaden what we mean by composability. Mm -hmm. If you are a very large public company, you don't have the luxury of all of the software that you are hosting all your different properties on, on the same identical stack. Imagine your Salesforce. You're doing you need to be multi-cloud or well, you need to be across different services. Well, let's imagine you have a bunch of companies, very large companies that you've just acquired. Salesforce has the Salesforce site, but then they have Salesforce Commerce Cloud, which was demand where they acquired. They just acquired Slack. So you're dealing with legacy. You're dealing with legacy. Like you've got a lot of different teams. And so this is one of the talks we've got planned. And let's say you want to have the same consistent branding, not just the same logo. It has to say Salesforce. You want to have the same UI components, but one's in React 
One's in Angular and one's in regular HTML. It's got no front end. And that, and that's the micro front end pitch right there. Well, that's what I don't think there's actually a name for it. That's a little bit of the micro front end, but it's like, how do you maintain what we've been starting to call it like a composable design system? One that's totally framework agnostic. And we've got a speaker, the guy who created agnostic UI is going to be speaking on that. So that's again, an enterprise use case of how do you create a certain level of composability where let's say you're doing a new tiger team to launch a new product very quickly but somebody says from corporate it's got to have the same branding and they want to go off and use a different framework nobody none of the other teams have done how do you make that work that's another element to a composable organization yeah i think it's starting to make more sense like that was that was extremely helpful like for me i'm more startup bias versus enterprise bias that's why this stuff is kind of hard for me to wrap my mind around but like that was a that was a very good pitch and it's starting to click a little bit i think that we're kind of going crazy deciding if it needs to be a monolith or it needs to be you know decoupled and as you're saying it really depends on the people the hottest take is that i could say right now is that it really doesn't matter your customers won't care and it's not going to stop you making money it's the product and the idea that will in some cases it may be more important not to try how and- happy your your development team is but maybe the other stakeholders who have to push mm-hmm. out content i have this saying that half your site is built by the non-developers in populating out the content. And one of the areas the Jamstack has some work to do, although it's been improving, is the tooling for non-developers in order to be able to use these platforms and not have to write Markdown and things like that. Not even Markdown. Yeah. You know, I you use headless CMS. You like, don't you like gray forms to define everything? Every block is a gray form of grayness. You know, like, oh, you don't know what gray form one is. Well, gray form one makes gray form two and you connect these components together and you get gray form three and it's like headless. What are they called? Visual CMSs are yes. starting to take off. Yeah. I really think they have their place, but there's still so much there and there's never going to be an easy answer for all of it. What I was meaning by my question and my hot take was that, are we always trying to over engineer it? Like my product failed because I made it a monolith, you know? No, like you started off, when is the right time to go actually swapping models to a decoupled uh, system? Or, you know, you may want to go the other way. I bet there's tons of enterprises that went from decoupled to monolith like today i think you have to do it based on your current context and what makes sense you know i remember in the early days when twitter was taking off and they built on ruby on rails people were like oh that was a mistake and one of the engineers was like he wrote a really good blog post he says no it wouldn't have become twitter if we didn't have the developer velocity in order to get to the place that we got traction the ideal path may not be the one that delivers you traction. It's path dependent. You should go with whatever is going to make the team as productive as possible. And it may be a monolith in the early days. And definitely in a startup case where you're, you know, limited headcount and you want to be able to hire somebody who know, you know, will know those conventions. Let's say you're on Redwood, like hire for Redwood, you know, this person's going to know this and you'll be able to work across the stack. But after the team gets larger and larger to hundreds, or you're one of these larger enterprise companies that has thousands, tens of thousands of developers you don't have to have everyone held up because they're trying to make a change and all the deploys have to happen at once it's very good points and i think the whole ethos of this episode has been everything depends and it's a gray area of everything (laughs) that should be the ethos of any tech conversation what do you mean we're all drinking the kool-aid over here i thought we were gonna re-recode everything in remix tomorrow and money (laughs) doesn't matter wait you mean you're not done migrating everfund already you know you know, I was waiting for the code mod to do it for me. <laughs> the Redwood to remix code mod. She'll be waiting a while for that one. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. You know, I hear Redwood doesn't hate remix yet. 
it goes back. You've heard the saying, I don't know, in some sort of premature optimization, right? The root, root of all evil. evil. Yeah, exactly. And don't optimize for the problems you don't have, or and you don't you don't know if you're gonna have them. Wait till it happens and then optimize. Yeah, literally, you could optimize it and have the best app ever, and nobody wants to use it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Don't fix it if it ain't broke. Like for example, let's just take a moment to speak about everything that is terrible about web development. Banks, airlines. You know, they, these people make lots of money. Their websites are terrible and they're not optimizing it. <laughs> well, we're working on getting rid of banks, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> says says Mr. Three over here. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Web3 mean, drop every Yeah. Every All right. Minute. Well, we're, thank you so much, Ishan and Scott, for being here. This is a really fascinating episode. I think we're going to probably call it here, but if there's anything else you guys want to shout out, I'll make sure this episode gets out soon because Composability Summit will be something that we want people to yeah. know about. So feel free to drop some links, your own socials, anything like that. Awesome. Yeah. Just remember composability.dev. You can follow me at Steinlogge Scott, S-T-E-I-N-L-A-G-E-S-C-O-T-T on Twitter. Yeah. I'm going to duplicate the composability.dev shout out. Check it out. I guess this will air maybe before, just before. If the topic excites you, talk to us. We'd love to have you either at this one or a future one. We're really excited about this area. We think it's really interesting to another thing that we're calling app ops, which is basically the application becomes the unit of scale and it makes it a lot easier. It takes kind of DevOps and what Jamstack has done, kind of applies it broader throughout the whole app. So we're really excited about that. The other shout out I'll just give is Edgeo. We're rebranding, so we need to make sure we get the word out. EDG.io. So look for that by the time this drops. And then if you want to follow me on Twitter, uh, you can follow me at I-A-N-A-N-D. And then the other shout out is JavaScript Jam, which is the podcast that myself, Scott, and Mark Bricado run. We're on Twitter Spaces now once every week. We have a live open mic. People can come and just bring up anything on web development, whether you're, you're a beginner really or whether you're them. an expert. We want to hear from you. Very much audience driven. And we do it like lunchtime in the Pacific San Francisco time zone on Twitter spaces right now on Wednesdays. Wednesday, uh, so definitely PM. tune in. What I really like it is it's audience driven. I get a lot of kind of feedback about the ecosystem through it. It's a blast. You got to at least check it out at least once if you haven't. I mean, today we had Dan Abramov. Yeah. On Twitter Spaces. And he just popped in, guys. We didn't we didn't invite. Yeah. It was pretty cool. That was really interesting to get his take on stuff. So it was like, yeah. how'd you find it? It just kind of popped up. Yeah, he was in his car. Actually, awesome. we lost reception. For I would him. guess yeah. because you can see spaces that pop up if on people, people you follow yes. are in it. So yeah. Michael Chan was in. He followed he was. Michael yeah, Chan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sure it was the algorithm. Yes, it was. So you're saying that I spoke after the Dan from React? (laughs) Wow. I must be more famous, eh? (laughs) You followed him and then, yeah. Yeah. It was a good time, though. It was great. So those are my shout-outs. Awesome. Well, thank you guys so much. This was great, too. Thank you. Yeah. Of course. Thank you. This will humbly always be a special memory for me. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <Don't worry. laughs> All right, cut. All right. Awesome.